right. Acts chapter 10. It's a long passage. You're welcome for having someone better than I read it to you this morning. One of the things I want to say quickly about that passage, and then we'll pray, and just to set up our time, the title of the message this morning is God at Work. God at Work. And you can't miss that in this passage. What this passage shows us, it was true then, and it is true today, that God is at work. In this passage, you see a Roman commander, a Jewish Christian fisherman. You see two, these two men, you see them praying. You see they both have visions, intertwining visions that providentially connect them. You see a perfect timing situation where the guys are knocking at the gate right when Peter's reflecting on the vision. You see the Spirit speaking to Peter, telling him, directing him what to do. You see the Spirit falling on these Gentiles. The point is this. God is at work. God is at work. And it is our hope, and it is my hope this morning, that we would long to see how God is at work around us, and that we would long to see God work through us. But before he will work through us, God must work in us. We want to see God work in us and through us. And that is exactly what we see in this passage. So God at work. So let me pray, and then we're going to go through this passage together. Lord, we thank you this morning for just this wonderful story, Lord, that means so much for us personally, Lord. We um, can hardly understand just how significant it is that the gospel of Jesus Christ expanded, Lord, to not just be another Jewish sect, but to be a faith that is for all people, extending to us this morning. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the good news of Christ. Help us understand it more deeply. Help us believe it more firmly. Help us live it out more brightly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God at work. So a Roman commander and a Jewish Christian, ordinary guy, fisherman. God at work. Just, just so at work. So the first point this morning is God at work in Cornelius. God at work in Cornelius. And so with that, you know, think about God at work in the world. Think about God at work in the secular world, a guy like Cornelius. So we see here first that this is happening. Do you see it in the first verse there? At a place called Caesarea. At Caesarea. Now, who do you think this city is named after? Yeah, it's named after Caesar, right? We're in the Roman Empire, not now, but then they were. And Caesar is a big deal. And they are in the province of Judea. And the capital, the government headquarters of the province of Judea is named after Caesar and is called Caesarea. And it is a coastal city, a beautiful city, still there. You can go there. And it is just north. It would have been for them a maybe 10-hour walk from Joppa, which is near Tel Aviv, up to Caesarea. At Caesarea. That's where Cornelius was. God at work in Cornelius. Now, who is Cornelius? 
Well, we see here that he is a Roman commander. We see that he was the head of a thing called the Italian cohort. He was a Gentile. He was not Jewish. He was not Jewish. He was, for military purposes as a soldier, deployed in this city, Caesarea, but he was not Jewish. He was Italian. He was a Gentile. He was at Caesarea. What else does it say about about Cornelius here? Well, he, he was devout. He feared God. So he was a good person. He was a morally good person. A very good person. He feared God. And so you can gather from that that he was, on the one hand, not a Christian. He was not a Christian. He, he was not yet a Christian. We're going to see that story in this passage. But he was a person who feared God. Like, kind of believed in the, the man upstairs, you know? Like, had a sense of, yeah, I got, yeah, I believe in God. He was a good person. He was a God-fearing person. He was devout. It says in the text that he gave alms. It means he gave. He gave of his own money to the synagogue. So he participated. It says that he prayed continually. So if you want to kind of bring this into our day, he's a guy, here's a guy who is not a Christian, who talks about God, believes in God, is a fearer of God, gives at church every Sunday, and prays a lot, but is not a disciple yet of Jesus Christ. I think it's really important that we have that category because there are so many people in a city like Raleigh, North Carolina, that are like Cornelius, perhaps some of us. But God is at work in Cornelius. God is at work, and that's really the point. So it's the ninth hour. It says it's the ninth hour, and he, as is his tradition to do, is praying. It's the ninth hour. They counted the time from sunrise, and so this is nine hours after sunrise. It is 3 p.m. in the afternoon. It's the ninth hour. He's praying. This is, would have been one of the common sort of daily calls to prayer for a Hebrew person, but Cornelius, being a God-fearer who gives to the synagogue, is participating. So it's not like he was just kind of like, you know what, man, just feeling a little anxious today, just want to pray without ceasing, I'm going to pray right now. No, this is the time of prayer. So it's the ninth hour, mid-afternoon prayer, Cornelius is participating. And what happens? a vision. He has a vision of a man in white. An angel comes to him. An angel comes to him. The ninth hour is significant in scripture. We already saw in Acts chapter 3 when Peter and John were going into the temple after the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus. Peter and John are going into the temple and it says they were going in at the ninth hour for prayers. They were going to the temple for the prayers. And that is when they encountered the paralyzed guy at the gate. And Peter said, you know, money, gold, silver, have I not? But this I give, I have to, whatever. I don't remember. But he, he, through the power of Christ, healed this guy. Ninth hour. The ninth hour. Jesus, from the cross, 
kept the ninth hour of prayer. It says at the ninth hour, Jesus prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this is a time of prayer. And Cornelius is participating in it. And he has this vision. A man in white comes to him and tells him, what does he tell him? He basically says, you need the gospel. He doesn't come to him and say, hey, you're good, bro. You don't need anything. He recognizes his prayers, his gifts, but he says, you need to hear the gospel from a man named Peter. That's what happens. So here's what we need to see from this first point. The first point, again, God at work in Cornelius, God at work in the world. We have to see, it's really important this morning, that we see and that we believe that Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, is at work in the world. There are 8 billion souls in the world, 42% of which live as part of a group of people that would be classified as unreached, meaning they have no access to a Christian. Eight billion souls in our world. God is at work in the world. John 3.16 says, and you know it, maybe, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loves Cornelius. God loves the world. That's why God is at work in the world. It's important that we remember that and believe that whatever we might be awake to or asleep to in our daily grind of our lives, we have to remember God is at work in the world. Matthew 28, 19, we often quote the Great Commission. Jesus is risen from the grave. He comes to his disciples. Peter would have been there. And he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Think about that in in this story. All authority. Authority over commanders of the Roman army. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, he's talking to the disciples and to us. He says, Go and make disciples of all nations. This is the heart of God. God is at work in Cornelius. He's at work in the world. Paul later will encourage the church at Ephesus to pray. He says, pray for your leaders. Pray for people like Cornelius, your secular leaders. Paul says that in 1 Timothy 2. And he grounds it in verse 4 where he says, Jesus, listen, desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. God at work in Cornelius. There's a Christian website called The Gospel Coalition. And I was reading an article on this site, and the title of the article is When Muslims Dream of Jesus. And in the article, it talks about a lot of things, and you can check it out. But one thing that's mentioned is a survey was done by Mission Frontier magazine of 600 Muslims who had become Christians, and 25% of them said that it was a dream that was instrumental in them becoming Christians. God is at work in the world. God is still at work in the world in these kinds of ways. Anyways, he goes on in this article to tell one story, and I want to read it to you. 
He says, a friend of mine tells of a Persian migrant who arrived at a refugee center at 6 a.m., visibly upset. He told his story to a Persian pastor. During the night, he saw someone dressed in white. You remember Cornelius says a man in white came to him in a vision. Anyways, back to the story of modern day. During the night, he saw someone dressed in white raise his hand and say, Stand up and follow me. The Persian man said, Who are you? The man in white replied, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the way to heaven. No one can go to the Father except through me. He began to ask the Persian pastor, Who is he? What am I going to do? Why did he ask me to follow him? How shall I go? Tell me. In response, the pastor held out his Bible and he asked him, Have you seen this before? The man replied, No. He said, Do you know what it is? The man replied, No. The pastor then opened to the book of Revelation, and he read, I am Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end. And the man started crying and said, how can I accept him? How can I follow him? So the pastor led him in prayer, and peace came over him. The pastor then gave the man a Bible and told him to hide it since the Muslims in the camps could cause him trouble. But the man replied, the Jesus that I met today, he's more powerful than the Muslims in the camps. He left and an hour later returned with 10 more Persians and told the pastor, these people want a Bible. No one had to teach him an evangelistic strategy. God at work in Cornelius. God at work in the world. It's so key, listen, that we see that. It's really important that we believe that God is at work. But, but one other thing, it's actually also really important that we understand what these verses show us is that people need to hear the gospel. Think about it. A good moral, God-fearing, giving, praying person like Cornelius must hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe. If you ever had someone ask you that question, it's sort of like the classical question, like what about those who have never heard? This would be a great passage to take them to, to show them here's what God wants to do in the lives of those who have never heard. Even those who have never heard who are very good and moral. He wants to go to great lengths that they might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus who says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So God at work in Cornelius in the world. Now secondly, God at work in Peter. God at work at Peter. God at work in Peter, the church. So think of this as God at work in Cornelius and now God at work in you. God at work in the church, in Peter. What we see here is a lot, really. There are three, well, Peter has the same vision three times. He has the same vision three times. There is then a very providential situation where these three men knock on the gate at the exact time that Peter is reflecting on the vision. Peter hears the Spirit's voice telling him that he's supposed to go with them. There's a whole lot of God at work in Peter happening here. 
Peter's going to undergo a major paradigm shift. That's God at work in Peter. God at work in Peter. So we see the next day. So these men come from Joppa, or they come from Caesarea now to go find Peter. Peter is staying with Simon the Tanner in Joppa. It's near Tel Aviv. So these men walk a full day's walk. They get there. What's happening in Peter's life? Peter, too, is having a vision. In fact, we see in the story, Peter is praying at the sixth hour. So what time would that be? Noon, the sixth hour. He's praying, and it's the sixth hour, and it's midday prayer, and Peter's like, you know what? I'm hungry. Can anyone relate with Peter? Okay, he's like, you know what? Midday prayer, I'm hungry. And so the story tells us that then he starts to prepare food. He starts to cook. And as he's doing that, praying, cooking, he falls into a trance, it says. The text says this. And he has a vision. And in the vision, a huge, you know, let's just say king-size bedsheet descends from the sky. It's a vision, okay? It doesn't say that that is what happened. It says that what happened was like that. It's the best effort to describe what really did happen in this vision. So let's go with it. And the four corners of the sheet are pointed out in the vision. And I think it would be helpful to see that as north, east, south, west, all the directions of God's creation. And inside of this sheet are all of these animals, some of which Peter would have deemed not kosher, unclean, not something that he's allowed to eat. We don't have anybody here that has strict diets and refuses to associate with certain foods, do we? So Peter's like that. Been like that all his life. Proud of it. The Lord tells him, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter's like, you know what, Jesus, that's a great idea, but I don't think it's the best idea. This is classic Peter. He's like, no mean, by no means, Lord. By no means. I'm too good for that. And God says to him, and we're in verse 15, <laughs> or in the vision, it says, What God has made clean, do not call common. And so the vision continues, and, and he then starts reflecting on it at this very time. These men are at the gate looking for someone that Cornelius in a vision was told for him to go find. All of these providential factors are coming together. This is amazing. Here's the thing. (laughs) What's really important to see in this second point, and John Stott puts it this way, the real conversion in Acts chapter 10 is not Cornelius, it's Peter. You know, there there is a well-known and often referenced tradition, and you may not have heard this before, but it is talked about a lot, but the, the man in a Jewish family would traditionally wake up every morning and he would pray this prayer. Here's what he would pray. Thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile, that I am not a woman, and that I am not a slave. That's it. So Peter is now a Jewish Christian man. He's a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
And the gospel must not only save Peter, but transform his heart and his view of the world. And that's what we see here. Paul puts it this way in Galatians. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. The point is simple. All vestiges, listen, all vestiges of cultural superiority that we harbor in whatever direction you go with them. Like you might be over here in like a majority culture looking over there saying, I'm glad I'm here and I'm not there. Or you might be over here where you're at, say, in a more minority culture looking over there saying, oh, so glad I'm not there. It doesn't matter really as Christians. All vestiges of cultural superiority, any hate that we harbor in our hearts must go. God desires to work in you, in the church, in Peter, so that he can work through you. Now, Peter, he's going to get it big time, but he's going to fail again. And I think it's helpful to point that out. Christian growth, growth in the Christian life, it, is a, it can be a powerful moment or it can be a long process. That's how it is. You know, in the sermon last week, we saw that Peter was staying with Simon the Tanner. That actually was a step. He was staying in a place where they make leather from animals, which would have been ceremonially unclean for a Jew to stay there. And so that was like a baby step for Peter. Some people, that's the step, right? Like, just maybe, maybe it's okay. Just take the baby step. Like, just go rent a room from Simon the Tanner. And then, you know, you see in the passage this morning, Peter's all in. Like, he gets a vision three times, and then it's like, wow, okay. Like, I'm going to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. They're going to come to Christ. It's like we're all in together. But then later, at Antioch, we'll see that the Apostle Paul had to challenge Peter, because Peter was later separating himself from Gentiles because he was worried about what his table fellowship with them looked like to his Christian brothers in Jerusalem. The Christian life, even on matters like this, can be an up and down journey. But the key is, are we committed to growing? It could be a moment or a process, but are we growing? It's interesting, one of the things in this story and one of the things in this point about God being at work in Peter is the part of the story where Peter is praying, he's eating, he's reflecting on the vision that he had where God is showing him not to call anything or anyone unclean or common. And it's like at the exact timing, those three guys, they come and they're at the gate shouting, yeah, we're here to find a guy named Peter. And so I think this morning, I just, I, I want to ask you this question. It just like is on my heart to ask you. Who's at your gate? Who has God placed at your gate? God at work in Cornelius, in Peter, in the church, and now third, God at work in and through both Cornelius and Peter. So, so look with me at this third point. 
God at work in and now through Peter and Cornelius. You see what happens in verse 24. It says, and on the following day, they entered Caesarea. So now Peter and some of the disciples with Peter are walking with these Gentiles. One of them's a soldier that Cornelius had sent to get Peter. They're now walking back to Caesarea. That takes a full day. They get there, it says, and on the following day, verse 24, they entered Caesarea. So here they are. What's happening? Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Later it will say that Peter noticed that there was a huge crowd. What an, what an amazing picture of God both working in Cornelius, we saw that in verses 1 through 8, and now working through Cornelius already. All these people, all of Cornelius' friends and family, none of them had the vision, but Cornelius did, and he loved them. And so he's like, come over to my house. Guys, come over to my house. I've got something I want to talk about with you guys. And they're like, what is it? And he's like, I'll tell you when you get there. It's great, though. We're going to do some stuff. And he's got everyone he loves there waiting for Peter. What a great example, God working through Cornelius. And then we see how God worked in and through Peter again more specifically. Verse 28, Peter shares his big aha moment, and it is this, that he has learned from his vision and now from what he's seeing at Cornelius' house, do not call any person common or unclean. Make no distinction. Do not allow in your heart or your practice for a person's culture other than your own to be a barrier to them hearing the gospel or receiving your fellowship. He says in verse 34, he has come to truly understand that God shows no partiality. So God is at work now in and through, in and through Cornelius, in and through Peter, because they are face to face. And Peter is now, in verses 36 through 43, going to share the gospel straight up with Cornelius. Cornelius says to him, he literally says, okay, we're here now. Please tell us what God has commanded you to tell us. This is like every Christian's dream situation. Or especially like a pastor's dream situation. And so Peter's like, okay, that can only mean one thing. It's, right? It can only mean one thing. I mean, hopefully he's not going to talk about, you know, stop smoking or something. You know, it's like, that only means one thing. To share the gospel of Jesus Christ with these people. And so Peter then, in verse 36 through 43, so eloquently, and this is one of the best places in Scripture, if you want to see the gospel laid out, he breaks it down. Number one, he says, Jesus is Lord of all. He's saying this to Cornelius. He's saying this to someone who was probably a participant in the emperor cult that said Caesar is Lord. He says, Jesus is Lord of all. Secondly, he says that Jesus died on a tree. Now, he didn't have to put it that way. Why did he put it that way? He put it that way to emphasize 
the Old Testament theme that a person hung on a tree is cursed. He's saying Jesus has taken your curse. He's become a curse for you. Death on a tree, death on the cross. He then talks about Jesus' resurrection. And he makes sure to point out that it's a bodily resurrection. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. Peter's like, listen, basically Peter says, we, we went out to eat. Like he was bodily raised from the dead. Jesus is alive. We had lunch. That's what he says. So for anyone who's like, you know, the resurrection is just a good moral story. It's maybe a spiritual resurrection. Take them to this passage where Peter's like, we went out for lunch. The gospel is not information only. It's an invitation. And in verse 43, he, you know, he comes right down their driveway and knocks on the door and says, here's the necessary response. Look at it. Everyone who believes, you must believe. You must believe. You must trust in the gospel. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter shares the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of forgiveness by faith alone, in Christ alone. Peter shares this with Cornelius, and Luke doesn't give us every detail, but we can understand from what happens next that they did believe. And in verse 44, we read, that while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Word and spirit. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. That's Luke's way of saying this isn't just Jewish Christian Peter who went to Caesarea and sort of had a weird experience and maybe he's not telling it correctly. He's like, no, there were Jewish Christians who are circumcised with Peter, eyewitnesses, and they'll tell you too. That's what he's saying. Why is he doing that? Because this is a significant paradigm-shifting moment in history. Jews and Gentiles together in the body of Christ. So we see that the Spirit falls. We see that the believers who were with Peter, they're amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out, it says, even on the Gentiles. They were hearing them speak in tongues. That, particularly in this moment, was a sign that they really had the Holy Spirit. They were, do you see, extolling God. That is a sign of someone really becoming a Christian. Think of it, just a moment ago, Cornelius fell down and tried to worship Peter. And Peter said, hey, stand up, man. I'm just a man like you. Even in that moment, we skipped over it, but there's so much powerful truth in that moment. Peter's like, we're equals. I'm not superior to you. I'm just a man. We're both men. Don't worship me. And Cornelius is like, okay, well, I'm just trying to do what my vision told me to do. And he's like, let me tell you about Jesus. And he becomes a Christian because he believes receives forgiveness of sins, verse 43, and it says now that they're extolling God, evidence of the Spirit at work, praising God. 
So then Peter's like, why should they not be baptized? Which is to say, listen, baptism is about inclusion in the body of Christ. So what Peter is saying is, he's not saying let's dunk them because that's it, that's what you do. He's saying, no, why should they not be publicly and totally incorporated into the body of Christ with us Jewish Christians? That's what he's saying. He's saying, tell me why not, why not? No one can say anything, and so he says, let's baptize them. It's amazing. Let me give you quickly four personal applications that I think would be great. But of course, application is between the Spirit and you and the Word of God. But here are four I want to encourage you with. Jesus wants me to be a multicultural disciple. Jesus wants me to be a multicultural disciple. Don't let that word feel too fancy, okay? Nothing fancy here. We're not talking about getting a major in grad school of multicultural studies or anything like that. It's just so critical, though, that, that like you and me grasp that it's not American Christianity. It's just Christianity. It, it's Jesus for every person. And so I ask you, what culture other than your own are you excited about seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ advancing in? The light that shines the farthest shines the brightest at home in your own heart. Jesus wants me to be a multicultural disciple. It is his will for us. Secondly, Jesus wants me to be a spirit-filled disciple. If you know Christ, then you have the Holy Spirit. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But Jesus wants you to be a spirit-filled disciple. Filled by the Holy Spirit, controlled by the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit. Look at these people in this story, praying at noon, praying at three, hearing God's voice, which implies an attentiveness to the Spirit, listening to God, seeing visions, extolling God. And you know what's the most Spirit-filled thing that happens in this story today? Let me tell you. Jesus wants me to be a spirit-filled disciple. Here's another one. Jesus wants me, he wants you and me to be a teachable disciple. Do you get that from this passage? Because it's really, really right there. A commander of a a cohort in the Roman army begging a fisherman to teach him something about God. A kosher and orthodox Jew, Peter, is willing to let God change a deeply ingrained and long-held view in a moment by his word. Are you teachable? You know what? Being teachable, this is what it means. It means that you're 
able to be taught something relatively quickly. That's what it means. You're not teachable if it takes 10 years of knocking you in the face with something. That's called actually being not teachable. <laughs> it's really true. Being teachable means I'm easy to be taught. I'm humble. God's spirit has worked in me. I'm humble. I'm able to be taught. Jesus wants me to be a teachable disciple. And Jesus, lastly, you know, just an application I would encourage you with. Jesus wants me to be a good news sharing disciple. Be a Cornelius. Invite your family, your friends to come and hear the gospel. Be a Peter and find a Cornelius and equip him and encourage him. See him as God sees him. Morally good is not good enough. Share the gospel faithfully. Make it simple. Jesus is Lord. Jesus on the cross. Jesus risen. Believe for the forgiveness of your sins. Think about it. Make it simple. Make it easy. Not easy like, you know, like fake Christianity easy, but make it accessible. Just think about it. Would you have baptized Cornelius? Cornelius, like 30 minutes earlier, was on the floor trying to worship Peter. I don't think he, um, you know, would have graduated from uh, kindergarten Sunday school at this point. But Peter's like, what is a reason he should not be baptized? He believes in Jesus. And the Spirit has filled his heart. Make it simple. Make it easy. Make it accessible. Jesus wants me to be a good news sharing disciple. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word, which is good, which is encouraging, which is inspiring. God, we thank you that you are at work all around us, Lord, that the city of Raleigh, the places that we work, the schools that we go to, the neighborhoods that we live in, God, these places are marked by the activity of your Holy Spirit. You are at work. So, Lord, let us be quick to see it and let us be quick to join in your mission as followers of Jesus.